Happy All Saints Day to you all as well, fellow saints. It's strange to think of ourselves as saints sometimes, isn't it? But it really is true that we, if we're found in Jesus Christ, we're saints. And as I was preparing the sermon for today, um, looking at the canticle for today, I thought, what more perfect canticle for All Saints Day? It, it professes the truths of why we're saints. It, it reminds us that Christ is our Passover. It reminds us all that Jesus has done for us. And as I was looking at that, I uh, was um, Googling um, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, because there's another part to All Saints Day that perhaps is less well-known, um, and if you know anything, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier uh, here in the United States is found in Virginia in Arlington National Cemetery, and since 1921, there's been an honor guard nonstop around the clock that keeps guard over the tomb, right? And um, you might remember when Hurricane Sandy came through, the guard still stood there in the rain, and the guard stands there through the snow to honor the unknown remains, the people who have died for their country that are entombed there. In a sense, All Saints Day also has that meaning for the church. You see, liturgically, there's lots of saints on the calendar, right? Saints that we know, saints like... St. Margaret and St. Joan, right? But there's also so many saints throughout the centuries whose stories aren't known. Those who lived and were martyred, those who maybe just converted so quickly and were martyred so quickly that no one knew their story, those who um, have, have lived however short, exemplary lives in Christ, and those are those those are the people that we specifically martyr today in addition to the fact that we're all saints. But it's a day set aside in the church for those whose stories, stories we just don't know. Right? So, kind of like the tomb of the unknown soldier for soldiers whose remains we just can't identify. So when we celebrate with the saints today, we're celebrating all of that taken together. And I want you to invite you to open up with me to the canticle for today, which we said together at the point between the lessons. It's the Pascha Nostrum on page 16 of your Book of Common Prayer. And here's the connection. You see, you and I are saints in Christ. But you and I are also soldiers in Christ. At the last few baptisms, hopefully you didn't miss it, when we take the child and baptize him or the adult, we put a sign of the cross on his or her forehead and we say these words, receive the sign of the cross as a token of your new life in Christ in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil. To fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's our fight. That's our fight. It's a triple fight. The world, which is always set against Christ. The flesh, 
which is our old nature, which has set against Christ, which continues to fight us, right? And when we say our flesh, we don't mean our bodies. We mean that, that old nature, those old desires that just won't go away and can make us despair so much because we don't look like Jesus when we engage in them. And the devil, well, that one's kind of obvious, right? Our adversary, the enemy of God, the one who seeks destruction and doom. So as we fight, it's important for us to remember that, number one, there's a fight going on, but number two, that Jesus has won the ultimate victory, which is where our um, canticle comes in. Look with me at page 16. We proclaim, Alleluia, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. First of all, that passage is probably familiar to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why? If you've grown up in a liturgical tradition, you probably hear that every Sunday on the Lord's Day, right? Alleluia, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. And sometimes we say Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Both are actually correct translations because of the way the Greek is structured. And I got into that upstairs in class, so I won't bore you with it that have already heard that. But it's a Greek word that means has been and is, right? So Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. So what are we doing today? What are we doing every Lord's Day, every Sunday? We're keeping a feast, a feast. It's a joyful thing. Why? Because Christ has won this victory. Christ is our Passover. What do we mean by that? Passover coming from the Old Testament, right? From the book of Exodus. What happens in Passover? Do you remember? The angel of death passes over the Hebrews' homes because they've put blood on the lintel and the doorposts of their houses, right? And who's that blood from? Lamb, a lamb, right? A lamb is taken, killed, and the blood is put on the doorposts and the lintel. And therefore, God passes over them. The angel of death actually passes over them and doesn't kill them. Now, what are we saying here when we're saying Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us? Do you see the imagery that St. Paul's drawing on here? He's saying that Jesus Christ offered himself and his blood so that we might be passed over by sin and death. Right? By the wages of sin, which he also tells us in the book of Romans, is death. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Boy, that is something to celebrate, right? That we're not going to pay the penalty for our sins. You see, in our world today, there seems to be not much forgiveness about, right? We like to nail people to the cross, to use an old phrase, over something they say or do. There's not much forgiveness or restoration. All you have to do is look in the press or in the politics and you see that. But there is ample forgiveness for the Christian. And look at the next phrase. So how are we to celebrate? Not with the old leaven, 
not with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Hallelujah. So what's being said there? Not with the old leaven of malice and evil. So for the Jews, when the Jews had this feast in the Old Testament, they would make unleavened bread, which means that you don't put yeast in it and you don't let it rise, right? They ate unleavened bread. We also use unleavened bread in Holy Communion, not coincidentally, right? And the idea of leaven came to take on a negative connotation for the Jews. So the leaven of malice and evil. What's this saying? It's using imagery, right? St. Paul's using imagery here not to use the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what he's saying here is, as a Christian, it's our job, being led in the Holy Spirit, to purge ourselves of malice and evil. To purge ourselves from malice and evil. What's that mean? We dig into it. What's malice? It's a type of anger, but it's not just anger. It's a type of anger that desires deadliness and, and, um, and evil intent for somebody else, right? So St. Paul's saying there's no place in the Christian's life for the malice of evil intent and evil. Sometimes the old translations translate this wickedness, right? Wickedness. No place for that in the Christian's life. Again, that's the battle. What's that battle against? The world, the flesh, the devil. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth for the Christian? To be sincere, to be truthful, right? Those are virtuous things that we pray we might emulate the saints in as we prayed in our college for the day. And that we ask the Holy Spirit to give to us because we can't do that on our own. Hallelujah. Why do we say hallelujah at the end of that? What's hallelujah mean? Hallelujah in the Hebrew. Praise the Lord, right? Right? Hallelujah. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Let's stop there for a minute. So here's a statement of fact in this passage, in this canticle. Christ has been raised from the dead never to die again. Death itself has been conquered. Right? That's a wonderful thing. That's a truth that we cling to, particularly as we looked yesterday at All Souls Day and those who have died. We know that death doesn't have the final say. But there's more, and that is that sin doesn't have the final say. So when we despair because we seem to be losing the battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil, we ought not to despair because Christ has won the victory over those things and were found in him, right? We've been marked with his cross. Look at the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. 
Christ dies on our part for sin. It's not saying that Christ was sinful, but that Christ being sinless died for sin on our part. So Christ has embraced the wages of sin. Therefore, we're to consider ourselves dead to sin, he says. So also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see, once again, there's an action that comes in the celebrating, right? The first action was to purge away the leaven of malice and evil. The second action here is to consider yourselves. It's a mental action. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. What's that mean? It means that when you feel like you're being overwhelmed, you're to come back to your baptismal vow. And remember, I have been marked as Christ's own. I'm one of his saints. And this shall not overcome me because the Holy Spirit is in me. So I cannot despair. I shall not be afraid because I have God in me and with me in all things. That's a hard thing to keep up, isn't it? But here's the beauty of it. It's not just getting yourself into that mindset. It's knowing that it's independently true. You see, this is not the power of positive thinking. That's not what we're talking about here. This is acknowledging a fact, which is what this canticle says, that it is a fact that you were marked as Christ's own forever and that he'll never abandon you and that his Holy Spirit's in you. Therefore, it is unreasonable for you to fall into despair. It is unreasonable for you to think that you're going to be overwhelmed. It is independent of you. And that's good news. That's good news. Christ has been raised from the dead, the third section here, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's the final promise the ultimate victory, that Christ has put his money where his mouth is, if you will. He's gone through death. He's gone through a death probably more agonizing than any of us will ever face. He's gone through the shame of it, the pain of it, the fear of it, and he's come out the other side alive and well. And so what this is saying, you know what the, the, the image of first fruits is? You know in the Old Testament there was the sacrifice of first fruits? You know, when does that sacrifice take place? The people of God are to take their first fruits and offer them unto God. Anybody know when that happens? Does it happen at the end of the season, at Thanksgiving? No. It happens at the beginning of the season. Just as that new life is coming up out of the ground, the very first things that are coming from God. That's taken and offered back to God. We emulate that when we bring the plate up front and we say, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. It's an acknowledgement that all things come from God. But the first fruits here, what is being said by St. Paul, is that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of God's promise to us, to you and me, to all saints. That Jesus has done this, he's been there, he's done that, 
He's got the t-shirt, to coin a phrase, right? In his case, the shroud, maybe. Um, he is the first fruits of God's promise. He has come forth from the dead, and he is proof that one day you and I will be brought forth from the dead. You see, there's this big confusion in America that I talked about a little bit yesterday on Souls Day, but I'll say again today, there's this idea that heaven is our final destination. And while it's true that Jesus says that after we die, we will be with him in paradise to the thief on the cross, and while it's true that Jesus um, promises to go before us and prepare a place for us, and John, in my father's house there are many mansions, what is not true is that that's the end goal. That's not the end goal. The dead sleep, says St. Paul. He uses that imagery. The dead will one day rise again. We heard it in the readings, right? The dead will come alive and come before the throne. And at some point, all saints, living and dead, will come before the throne of God at the general resurrection. And so Jesus is the first fruits of the general resurrection that St. Paul talks about in Thessalonians. He's the proof that this is going to happen. Jesus will come back and we will stand before the throne of God and we won't be disembodied souls, but we will be people with spiritual bodies, 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 15. And we will join with all the saints in giving glory to God giving glory to God. And the battle, the struggle, our soldierness will no longer be necessary because we will no longer have to fight the flesh, the devil, and the world. That's the promise that comes with All Saints Day. That God has won the victory. That's the promise in the canticle. Alleluia, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. There is nothing more important in life than this feast because this is our ultimate identity. This is the promise of God. This is the hope that keeps us going. Friends, this is your day. Amen.